I'm calling this era an era where we're in a sort of geopolitical mosh pit. You know, these different power centers, as you put it, right? Whether they are the different central banks of the major economic zones or even the central bank of oil, which we call OPEC plus, these are all actors acting in their own interests first and foremost. And it's it's it produces kind of an every man for himself dynamic, which is why I call it, you know, this geopolitical market. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another edition of our Global Macro Series, where today, as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Jim Kazan, as well as our very special guest, Michael Cow, to try and make sense of the ever-changing global economy. Welcome to the show, Michael, and thank you so much for joining Jim and I for what promises to be a lively and very insightful conversation as part of our Global Macro Series. How are you doing? How are things in sunny California today? Thanks for having me. You do realize that you just said Gemini. So like you guys are like like twins. <laughs> or twins. <laughs> We've grown together. If only you can see the uh, the video and see how much alike we look. <laughs> yeah. No, that's pretty cool. Thanks for having me. And, you know, Jem, is, yeah, I, I feel like we, uh, you and I know each other. We've participated in so many spaces together. And I think we share many sort of uh, macro views that, that are simpatico. But, yeah. Absolutely. Mutual mutual respect. Uh, very excited to have you on the show. Absolutely. Well, let's just kick it off. Um, and I think just to kind of warm up uh, our voices for this conversation, why don't you start out, Michael, with just sharing a little bit of your sort of current big picture macro framework. And maybe also, if, if you don't mind, maybe add how, how it's changed perhaps in the last year or so, given every all the crazy stuff that's happening right now. So I, yeah, I've, so I've been looking at the oil space for a long time now, for about a decade, you know, when, when I was still running my fund at Canthos during the 20, you know, 15 to call it 2020 bear market in oil, we were heavily involved in that, in um, the distress sector, you know, it, especially in distressed debt. When I officially uh, retired from active hedge fund management in 2019, I, the only position I kept was a SPV in a post-reorg equity from one of the energy restructurings that we participated in all the way back in uh, 2016 to 2018 period. So uh, even though I, I am now uh, semi-retired and managing my own money, I focus on oil very much. I'm in constant contact with the management team that runs uh, this this private equity, um, and our, we have a unique strategy because you know, be, given the volatility that was experienced during that 2015 to 2020 cycle, 
and a lot of the terrible capital reallocation uh, decisions that we saw in the public sector. When we restructured this company, we we decided that explicitly that we would run it as a full harvest play and take the capital reallocation decision out of the equation. Right. So so I, I guess my bet is a long term uh, bet. And it's designed to be a self, a sort of duration shortening bet, right? Because as we produce our our barrels, it eventually liquidates the inventory over time. It'll take it'll take many many years to, to fully uh, harvest this asset. So so I've been watching uh, macro and oil for a long time. I'll, I'll start by by saying that in in 2020, at the end of 2020, it became evident. Um, to me, with especially with uh, you know the the confluence of Biden's election, he was very very vociferously against the oil and gas industry. That was one factor. The other factor, obviously, is coming out of COVID with the uh, with the vaccinations. The market started tightening up, and I think in early twenty one, you saw the first flip from contango uh, to backwardation. I remember doing a study back then at all the different contango to backwardation flips over the the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years, and found that in something like seven out of 11 times, uh, it produced much, much higher forward, sorry, future spot prices. So it was a very interesting signal. And, and the four times where it failed were um, exogenous uh, circumstances like you know the the most recent being what I call the Trump rug pool of 2018. Everybody remembers how bloody Q4 of 2018 was, where you know Trump had um, uh, pulled us out of JCPOA, promised no waivers, uh, and then got the Saudis to flood the market, and then granted 11 waivers, and the bottom fell out of the market. Right around the same time, that was when I started. Uh, I, that's when I found Twitter, so, so to speak, and I started tweeting about oil and I. And I and I said I think I think we're in store for a, a strong bull market in oil, so that obviously uh, started panning out throughout uh, 2021, um, 2022. But I'm not a perma bull or a perma bear. I think you have to adapt your uh, at least shorter term trading views as things change. And one of the things that I uh, worried about is oil, especially with the uh, the war premium being injected into oil and Right after the Russian invasion, I was thinking, boy, you know, this run up into the hundreds is is a bit premature. Um, I think this this is worrisome because there's always a negative feedback loop dynamic, and uh, this in turn, uh, at the end of 21, I started making the link between um, oil inflation and what it would do to the Fed. It's almost hard to envisage this now, but. At the time, if you remember, you know, we were still in a world of absurd and uh, it was very out of consensus to say that, hey, you know what? The Fed is going to get, get very hawkish and uh, cause a huge sell off in risk assets and cause the dollar to be strong. But that was a big contrarian call uh, I made at the end of 2021. And in 2022, you saw the dollar ramp very strongly. The Fed started its hiking cycle. And um, probably around like middle of, uh, of 2022, it was a little bit early, but I said, I think oil 
it's going to have some trouble with these negative feedback loop dynamics. A strong dollar, especially with a dollar-based commodity, is not going to be good for oil. Um, and so you bring that all the way forward uh, to now, at the end of 2022, also, I was thinking, you know, China, I started thinking about China a lot and how vulnerable China's debt situation is. I mean, if, when you when you look at the... PBOC balance sheet, I think it's a complete facade um, because, you know, China to me is Enron writ large. They they have financed themselves completely through an investment-led, centrally planned uh, investment-led economic approach, which is all financed by all these like, you know, SOE, state-owned enterprises, these uh, One Belt, One Road projects, these uh, LGFBs. And it's off, all off balance sheet, but um, they have a huge, huge debt problem. And I thought, well, if it weren't for capital controls, I think the yuan um, would be at risk of a major devaluation in and of itself. But I started thinking about the interplay between oil and the yuan. And I think where we're at today is that in the short term, I see oil and the and the Chinese yuan in kind of a dangerous short-term doom loop, and almost like a vicious cycle. Because in March of this year, I wrote a piece right at the height of the regional banking crisis, and I said, "Look, I I ultimately think the regional banking crisis is a provincial worry. I think the global elephant in the room, the global black swan, I worry about is a major deflationary bust caused by." Uh, China, because if you think about the PBOC's quandary, I think I, I, I love to use the um, Homer's Odysseus uh, myth of you know Odysseus trying to cross that strait between the Scylla and the Charybdis, right? And I said, look, if Odysseus is the PBOC, to the right of him is the Scylla monster. The Scylla monster is a weak yuan. A uh, weak yuan would mean that um, they could potentially import commodity-based inflation since uh, China imports uh, 90% of its oil, which is dollar-based, right? Um, but but uh, it also potentially sets off their debt bomb because it's, it's, it's kind of opaque just how much dollar-denominated debt they have. A lot of people say that, oh, it's all, it's all local currency-based. I, I know, though, that at least uh, uh, all of you know all of the one dot one road debt is dollar based. So I think they have the potential. In in that blog post that I wrote, uh, I called it a ball in a china shop, meaning the U.S. dollar wrecking ball. You know, th th there's this guy Andrew Hunt out of the U.K. who did this interesting bottom up study of I think like 36 of the largest banks, uh, and he said that basically the discrepancies that he, he and his team found versus the publicly available balance of payments data show a discrepancy of $4 trillion. So uh, that's, that's a scary thing to me in and of itself. But back to the Scylla versus Charybdis. So, so the Scylla monster is the weak yuan. The Charybdis monster is the strong yuan. And the strong, a strong yuan is bad for China because, as we all know, their entire... Uh, economy is export driven uh, and export driven to the West, to the Western consumer. And what's happening to the Western consumer? Well, so far uh, they're held up. They, they've held up. 
But as we all know, you know, we're in a sort of competition with the world central banks to see who can out hawk each other. So that's not going to hold. That's my opinion. And I think we are in a higher for longer regime. So as the Western consumer starts to really buckle, I think China will have serious pressure to devalue their yuan. And the reason why I think they are now um, going to be okay steering the ship closer to that Scylla monster or weaker yuan is because back to oil. Oil has collapsed despite two OPEC cuts, which I've written about. I've written that they are, I think they are premature because OPEC cuts are themselves restrictive and they're basically fighting the Fed. Um, and so we're going into a third OPEC meeting right now. And uh, I think OPEC, in a way, is stuck because they reset these expectations where people expect a cut. But we all know that Russia has been kind of free riding because they need oil revenues to fund their war machine. And what I am concerned about, the black swan and oil, is that there could be a rift between Saudi Arabia and Russia. And we all saw what happened in COVID when uh, Russia, before OPEC became OPEC plus, Saudi Arabia and Russia got into a pissing match over market share and absolutely destroyed the oil market. That's when WTI went to negative 38 bucks a barrel. So, so that's a black swan that is out there that, that worries me in the short term. But again, this is why the PBO, it makes, it emboldens the PBOC to weaken the yuan without worrying about importing, you know, commodity-based inflation. And between that and also they, they've also restocked their SPR uh, at our expense, essentially, right? We've gutted our SPR. They filled their SPR. So anyways, I'll pause there for questions that was a lot of stuff that we just covered. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there's a lot of stuff in there luckily uh you 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 pivoted to china i think we're going to come to a lot of the other things china was also very high on mine and i know uh, jim wants to also dive into the oil. So lots of things to to go into just just a couple of comments um what's confusing for me with, with china is and i'm certainly not an expert in this but i am listening to i think a lot of smart people and and i think there is some definitely some divergent opinions about these things first of all you often hear well you know the china reopening it's going to be great for the global recovery i don't so far haven't really seen anything that suggests that it is but then on the other hand um you know when you look at their imports of energy there are products based on that data they seem to be actually at at all-time highs now again both in march and april uh, according to the people that I uh, uh, listen to. So that's also a little bit confusing. But I do agree, uh, well, I, I say, I've certainly heard from from other sides as well, this thing about the debt. And, and actually, Bloomberg is out today with a podcast where I just caught the first 10 minutes. And apparently, there's this province or city called Hegang, which is a remote coal town in the northern part of China. And they have faced a mountain of debt and have had sort of been forced to undergo a very severe financial restructuring. So I do think you're absolutely spot on that there is uh, some some issues there. And 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 uh, Andrew Hunt from, I think it's Longview Economics or something like that in the UK, uh, I, I did uh, I did pay attention to his uh, stuff as well. And, and it is, I mean, with China, who knows, but he seems to have done a lot of digging into, into those numbers. So um, interestingly enough, Michael, we have had many guests on, on the show, but not 
lot, a lot of them really puts China um, as high on the list as, as you do, but I think it's for, worth paying attention to. And then I heard another one of our guests today uh, from last year, Peter Zion, he came out today and for the first time he was saying, actually, it's probably a, to a, a, a coin toss between China invading Taiwan or not. And that's the first time I've heard him say that. I think he's always been on the side of, ah, they're not going to do it. They don't really want to do it. But now he's saying there's so much bad information going on in the CCP and and around uh, Xi that it, actually it could happen. So interesting. Yeah. Times. So uh, Okay. Yeah. So in, a couple of interesting threads to pull on. I actually, uh, uh, I'm a fan of uh, Peter Zahan's books. I've read a bunch of his books and I think he's for for like long term geopolitical predictions, geopolitical predictions, he's been pretty prescient. And uh, actually, on May 11th, I chaired this private event uh, with Peter uh, as the keynote, and uh, uh, just listened to his updated views. And you know, found it, it was it was very interesting because we all we also followed it up with a panel afterwards uh, with a bunch of uh, uh, Indo Pacific experts. So there was some interesting back and forth about about that, but I think I think you know to paraphrase Peter, I think China, you know, look, China's got a serious demographic issue, as we all know, um, and I think Peter thinks that China is very very woefully unprepared to start like a big kinetic escalation um, with uh, you know across the strait. But one of the things one of the things that I brought up. Uh, in this panel, and I and I also like tweeted it out, is that one uh, one of the biggest geopolitical risks for the for the U.S. and the West, I think, is actually a bloodless coup scenario, a, a peaceful reunification. Because let's think about it, right? So, the, and why would that happen? Because two years ago, I had a conversation with a friend of the family. In Chinese culture, friend of the family is called an uncle, right? Everybody's an auntie or an uncle. So I'll just li I'll label him my uncle. And, you know, he, like my parents, fled uh, to Taiwan from China originally in, in that 1949 uh, revolution and with the KMT. And growing up, I always heard about the enmity between the KMT and the CCP, because right? CCP obviously took over. Um, so imagine my surprise when my, you know, air quote uncle said, I asked him, would we, do you think that uh, China would invade Taiwan? This is two years ago. And he said, oh, we would just welcome them with open arms. I'm like, wait, what? You, you, you were in the KMT, you served in the KMT, you would welcome reunification with the CCP? And he said, well, the, the opposing party, the one that's in power, the DPP, um, basically wants to uh, distance them, uh, themselves from our Chinese heritage, right? Our ethnically Chinese heritage. And, uh, we don't like that. We are ultimately, um, you know, Chinese by, by heritage. And we'd rather, you know, reunify with, uh, with Taiwan. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I've also heard in recent weeks that the officer core of the Taiwanese military is primarily KMT. So to, to me, this is a, you know, a gray rhino risk, right? A gray rhino risk is a, is a risk that it's out there, but it's, it's just poo-pooed. It's discounted by everybody. And I think politically, if, some, if something like that happened, it would be very, very hard for the U.S. to intervene because the world will say, hey, they want to get together peacefully. 
But I think geostrategically, uh, it would be disastrous for the U.S. and the West, right, if, if that were allowed to happen. I mean, you know, TS, TSMC alone is, uh, is a very, very dangerous uh, choke point, as we all know, in the semiconductor supply chain. But then Taiwan's position in the, uh, in the first island chain represents a, a crucial way for uh, China to break out and project power outside of that. So I think the implications on instability in the region for, you know, all the countries in the area, like Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, the Philippines, it, it would be a big disaster. We've actually interviewed Peter Zihan before, and I've read his one of his books as well. Obviously, you know, China is structurally weak uh, from a, both a geography perspective, right, uh, commodity perspective, and demographic perspective, right? These are kind of the major points. And I think it's an incon- incontrovertible like reality that if they are going to lose, uh, as projections say, about 500 million in population in the next 25 years, right, uh, just based on the one-child policy and, and demographic shifts, especially without any major immigration, right, which they don't have, they have an input problem. And it's one of their few sources of strength and has been, right, for some time is that labor force. I think that's what makes the semiconductor issue so important. It's a labor replacement. Uh, as we see with AI, right, and the move towards things, you have to move up that technology chain, right, kind of like Japan did uh, to some extent if you want to compete uh, in, in all these ways, right? It's particularly if you have a demographic issue like you have. So I don't think they have a choice. Never mind all the, you know, cultural aspects that you mentioned. Never mind the first island chain issue and the geographic issues that they have. Um, they are at a structural, this is, this is not a point of, uh, they're going to, it may be to your point, it may be a, a reconciliation that happens, right? It may be, uh, it may happen another way, but what I don't think is, uh, it, it, they're, they're willing to do is, is let Taiwan move away, right? Um, it's too much of a risk for them given how fragile, uh, their position is as it stands. And I think they're very aware of that. That's my personal view. And so I think, I think it, it, to Peter's eye's point, I, I think it's a very high likelihood that if, unless you're right and that it's a peaceful reunification, which again, you would know better than I do, but I, based on what I know, somewhat skeptical, um, I think at some point this does become kinetic. Uh, but that's my personal view. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think the way Peter hedged himself uh, with, with, you know, I mean, he, he, of course, he brought up all of those uh, uh, issues, the, the demographic one being one of them. But I would note that I think Peter also uh, incorrectly predicted that because of the same reasons and same rational thinking that Putin wouldn't necessarily invade now. But it, it, in fact, that the logic actually uh, was was exactly opposite, right? Because if he sees the writing, you could also say that if he sees the writing on the wall from a demography perspective, then he also realizes it's this is this is a, as good as it gets. It's now or never, and and that's that's what kind of worries me. The other point that Peter brought up is that she, like Putin, has isolated himself and essentially uh, done this huge purge, and essentially cut him off from a good uh, feedback loop of information. So. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a uh, a dictator that has cut him off, cut himself off from a, a good feedback loop 
loop of uh, information. So that's uh, it, it is scary. I don't I don't know. And that, you know that it's interesting. You know, back to the currency, back to the yuan. The reason why I think that's a pretty interesting bet, even even though it's run up uh, a little bit or run down a little bit, I, is that it rep to me it represents an option. It's a there's this a negative correlation with oil, right? As the as the yuan as dollar yuan goes up, I think oil goes down. There's this geopolitical option uh, in the event of uh, any sort of uh, you know, escalation across the Taiwan Strait. And then there's just the natural gravity of of an over-levered national balance sheet. So that was my chicken way of hedging my long-term oil exposure. <laughs> so which is a natural transition to to energy. I you know I'd love to again you've you've been playing in that sandbox for quite some time um and Niels and I have talked to quite a few kind of energy specialists kind of in the last uh call it six months uh nine months a year uh you know obviously there's the supply uh kind of uh, issues right there's a lack of supply from for lots of reasons which again I know you're very familiar with and the big question has been demand right the big question is uh you know you have a very inelastic supply curve which is very favorable for if you can get demand, what will happen to price? But you know, the big question is: is are we going to get that demand? What are, what are your views on that? Both kind of short term, medium term, long term. How do you think this uh, this plays out more from a, just a supply and demand perspective? Um, you know, not as it relates necessarily to China or you know, again, take it take it how you will. No, I, I'm glad you brought brought up the the issue of uh, supply elasticity because last year. Last summer, I wrote a thread about um, you know forward curves and and holy grails or the lack thereof. That's I think that's what I called it. And I basically said that uh, you know at that time, right? We were all the all the markets were in pretty steep uh, backwardation. But um, I basically said beware of the sword of inelastic supply. That sword cuts both ways. And when you have an inelastic supply curve, which is a much more vertically uh, sloped supply curve, meeting an unexpected downward demand shift, right? That re- that results in a very very steep uh, decline, and that's exactly what you saw, by the way, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, right? You had you you had a hundred and forty dollar oil very backwardated market, and then all of a sudden GFC hit, and you had this downward demand shift. There's no leading indicator for that type of demand shock, really, because that, and that's what that's what gets a lot of people in trouble because, you know, at the at the start of our uh, talk today, I was I was saying how in 2021, I've one of the, re- the reasons why I was confident that oil was going to have a bull run was the significance of the of that first shift from contango to backwardation because that signifies the first time that the market is willing to pay you a convenience yield to 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 own a convenience yield for spot over forward contracts, right? So that's a sign that the regime of supply and demand is shifting. But but there's no equivalent uh, uh, signal the other way around. Once you're in backwardation, usually what happens is that something bad happens in the world, like, you know, credit crunch inspired by a very hawkish Fed. I mean, <laughs> that's that looks like what's happening, right? So 
I think the danger is that the barrel counters are still looking at, oh, the, the market's so tight and blah, 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 blah. But demand is notoriously hard to forecast. And based on all of the other macro indicators, and this is where I think it's very important to not just pigeonhole yourself into barrel counting and looking at oil data, because the central banks of the world are hell-bent on um, destroying aggregate demand for everything, not just oil, just for everything, right? They have a very blunt tool. And pro-cyclical commodities are typically very, very vulnerable in a recessionary environment, oil included. And going back to the elasticity thing, the reason why I think that the two OPEC cuts, uh, one in October of last year and one in April of this year, were premature is that by doing those cuts, the, the, those two cuts together, I think, total about, you know, probably about 2 million barrels per day of additional spare capacity. I was already in the camp, uh, uh, unlike a lot of the permabulls who, who basically said, oh, we're already out of spare capacity. I'm like, no, that's bullshit. If we were out of spare capacity, oil would have hit 300 a barrel in, in uh, you know, earlier this uh, start last year, not 140 or whatever it did. So whatever that spare capacity number uh, was before the cuts, it's now at least 2 million barrels more. The, the forward supply curve, not to be confused with the, the forward curve itself, but the forward supply curve for oil has effectively become much more elastic. So my concern with that is that when we eventually emerge out of the recession that hasn't even hit yet, I think it probably precludes the flyaway oil scenario that many people are hoping. I myself, right, I've had this view that sometime this decade, we will have a molecule shortage just due to all the factors that everybody knows about, right? Long-term capex starvation, all these things. And I call, I call that the supply-demand singularity point where essentially demand uh, exceeds all available spare capacity. And you have this potential uh, flyaway scenario where OPEC loses control and oil could, could go to like 300 barrels. The problem, though, is that now I think between the central bank's actions and also, I think, uh, frankly, OPEC prematurely uh, creating all this uh, supply elasticity while still, I, I guess, keeping shale afloat, right? Allowing shale the, the continued incentive to keep spending on, on CapEx. I think that pushes that supply-demand singularity out a couple of years, and it also shortens the, the viable quarter under which that, that scenario might happen. So I've been thinking a bit about this. This is a, kind of a step back from 30,000 feet, but you know, we've been in a 40-year period of complete Fed monetary dominance, right? The, the Fed put has been omnipresent, right, uh, which has driven interest rates top left to bottom right, right? Um, and the Fed could do that because they had two mandates. And at the end of the day, uh, they were, they were get, you know, they had the benefit of having both go their direction, right? And they pumped that money in and created a massively deflationary system via globalization and technological development, right? Uh, by sending money to capital. 
problem with that with that is is that it, it created inequality and and now we have populism right and, and and so this is kind of that's the 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 quick summary but if we have secular inflation coming back which i believe we do which is driven by people and populism and deglobalization and all these things what that the important takeaway of that for me is the diminishing value the the diminishing strength of the fed put and and the the fact that the fed has essentially they're losing some level of control of of what's otherwise been a very controlled system and what that does is it takes something from what's been essentially two dimensions like a cyclical model right and increases dramatically the d- dimensionality of a system um it is a much less controlled system and in a situation where you have no longer have a bully in the room that's fully in control of everything now you have a bunch of other power centers right and those power centers are um they can be commodities uh, somebody who owns some fundamental thing of value it can be military power there's still currency and, and uh, power um but any true fundamental source of uh, value or power becomes more valuable uh whereas some of these things really kind of paled underneath what was fed dominance and so i take that thread and and i i pull it over to you know oil in particular right it's not a coincidence in my mind that the last time we had inflation we had a major opec crisis um why because they had more power during that time because the us monetary system was was not in control and so i believe you know based on this broad theory that uh, higher interest rates which i believe are structurally you know increasing um will lead to not just more kind of leptocurtic kind of crazy things happening uh, across uh, parts of the market but ironically less and true sources of power like commodities uh, actually less volatility in some ways on the downside more maybe upside but less more more uh you know at a oil put for example i think opec will be much more activist i think they will be much more they will underpin and be willing to underpin uh you know and, and flex their muscles more in this environment so what do you think of that i'd love to hear your thoughts i love that there's so many so many strings to 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 pull on here first of all i'll, I'll say that your your way of uh thinking about the world in terms of just the 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 loss of control by the fed i i i think back to uh, if if you look at a envisage a, a long term chart core PCE uh, from the early '90s until now, what you see right is exactly what you said. You've got this tight quarter of call it between zero and two percent core PCE throughout this entire multi decade period until recently, where it shot up to five percent. Now, what that tells me is this right regarding the Fed put. The Fed put was there every step of the way through the tequila crisis of 1994, uh, the uh, Asian contagion of 1998, the dot-com bust of 2000, the GFC of 2008, COVID of 2020. Every single time the Fed put was there and was able to flood the market with liquidity at the first time, at the first sign of a, a, an economic downturn. But that was because of how well behaved that core PCE is. And now that core PCE is sticky, and I agree with you, it's sticky for structural reasons. I would even I would even say that, you know, I think oil inflation, if you look at the uh, components of CPI, what's very interesting is that initially 
it was oil inflation that kicked it off. It was the energy component that was dominant. But at, even as the negative feedback loops of high oil prices kicked in and, and the energy inflation piece came back down, it had already ignited expectations in the uh, shelter and labor components. And those components are now also, I think, underpinned by structural demographic factors. And this is a very, very different regime than in the past. And my, my, you put it so much more eloquently than I did, but I, I'm calling this era an era where we're in a sort of geopolitical mosh pit. You know, these different power centers, as you put it, right? Whether they are the different central banks of the major economic zones or even the central bank of oil, which we call OPEC plus, these are all actors acting in their own interests first and foremost. And it's, it's, it produces kind of an every man for himself dynamic, which is why I call you know, this geopolitical market. And I agree with you. I think OPEC, the other thing about oil specifically is that, you know, um, we have now, in, in my latest piece uh, that, that I wrote about this, about, about uh, the deep dive on oil, we talk about these different oil regimes that we found ourselves in. And, you know, during that 2015 to 2019 regime, that was a very rare period where the U.S. was clearly the swing producer and U.S. and OPEC really had no ability to influence prices. I would say that we're not quite in a regime where OPEC is the full swing producer yet because shale is still out there and shale is still growing, albeit at a slower pace. But we're clearly moving towards a regime where OPEC is now the swing producer. And, you know, the flip side of the argument, I have this debate with my, uh, the management team of my oil company all the time. I think OPEC, OPEC moves have been premature and a mistake, but they would say that there's a, they have a different view. They, they would say that the OPEC cuts are symptomatic of an OPEC that is much more confident in being able to control supply without fear of undisciplined shale, right? So, so that, that kind of goes to your point, Jem, about how, you know, in this new regime, right, OPEC plus is now a, a much bigger power center than it was, at least during that last regime of U.S. swing producer. Can I uh, just add to that? Because I'm I'm listening to both of you, and I think this point about being in control is incredibly important. It leads me to something I want to talk about as well later, which is about trust in these authorities. But I'm thinking we've kind of seen that, as as Michael pointed out, that you know the Fed has, or, or maybe maybe it was you, Jim, the the Fed has lost control. But to some extent, OPEC lost control as well. And I'm thinking these cuts which are in size not that different from what the U.S. has released from the SPR, that these cuts are actually their way of trying to gain control of what's going on. So in a sense, they're bo- we have both these institutions slightly out of control, trying to get back into control, because they both are in charge of two very important parts of the economy, either the oil price or uh, the, the rates of the U.S., uh, so I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a bit of an overlap in, in what's going on. And if they both are slightly out of control, obviously that doesn't paint a great, well, it paints an uncertain picture for sure. 
the very complicated dynamic that we find ourselves in is that most of OPEC's history, the plus wasn't in OPEC plus, right? Um, it's only after this incredibly mutually destructive market share war post COVID that uh, finally, you know, NBS and uh, and Putin decided to make amends and say, "Hey, we're going to band together." And my point is that that period of solidarity between core OPEC and Russia has been a brief one, and it's been a bit of an experiment. I worry, though, that because OPEC ultimate, sorry. Because Russia has to rely on oil to fund its war machine, uh, that these re- and they've already been free riding, right? Um, that there's there's a black swan risk now of fracture within OPEC plus itself. So it'll be very very interesting. I, I, you know, it, it's also very very interesting that you know yesterday Javier Blas said that he uh, he along with you know a whole bunch of uh, reporters. For the first time in his, I don't know, 27 years of covering OPEC, they've been banned from this meeting. So I'm like, hmm, what are they, what are they, what are they trying to hide here? And I suspect it's that there's probably some rift going on and they don't want to air their dirty laundry in front of, in front of, uh, uh, the press. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. And I think you guys both bring up an important point, right? In, in the 1970s, the U.S. was not the oil producer it is now. And that's a dramatic difference in the power center. Um, the, the U.S. has more structural power as a function of that um, in that relationship. And, and that could be mean that the, the level of control in that system, you know, on the oil side is less secure than than it was in the 70s. Now, I mean, it brings me to, to the point I mentioned before. I mean, I think we've witnessed uh, kind of one or two decades in terms of irresponsible policies from many fronts. And my big worry today is that one day we're going to wake up and we're going to realize that the markets and investors have kind of stopped trusting the people in power. But I, I wanted to, I mean, first of all, I wanted to find out whether you think this is a, a kind of a real uh, risk. And also, I wonder if there is any kind of set of data, Michael, that you look, I mean, all could be even, dare I say it, policymaker. Uh, that that you kind of trust more more than others, the kind of like the old Bundesbank days, where actually you could be pretty sure that they weren't trying to score any brownie points uh, from when making policy. But are there anyone out there that we can still trust, or is it just a matter of time when people wake up and say this this is just a step too far, and then the markets r- literally will go crazy? I you know what I I think so for me. The, the way I think about the world, I always used to tell my analysts, I would much rather be generally accurate than precisely wrong. And what I always worry about is getting lost in the weeds uh, and looking at a specific set of data without considering a broader framework, right? And, and so that, I think, I think that is more important than ever. I mean, I think, frankly, in the, in the world of oil, uh, a lot of folks, I think, get lost in the minutia and barrel count and look at balances and, and things like that without necessarily considering uh, the world outside of the oil vacuum. Because, you know, when when people, I remember very clearly, I, 
having this discussion, I probably on, I think it was on Twitter uh, with people about, this is when oil prices were substantially higher than they are now. People were arguing, you know, that, you know, look, the physical market's super tight. Backwardation is super strong. There's no sign of you know, demand weakness. But m- my point is, look, as, a, as an analyst and investor, you're trying, to, you're trying to anticipate where the puck is going, not where the puck has been. And you have to consider that, again, going back to this idea that the sort of inelastic supply cuts both ways, I think that framework is a powerful one because demand, a downward demand shift for oil can come not just from high oil prices, it can come from high prices for other things, right? When, when we talk about inflation and the perniciousness of inflation being the most regressive tax of all, and the fact that we have sticky components in inflation that, that are unrelated to oil and barrel counters of oil might just completely dismiss, well, that's where you get, you miss the forest from the trees because that same beleaguered investor has to make life choices between, okay, do I, you know, now that I am barely able to afford, you know, cost of living, um, do I carpool with a friend? I mean, there are all these things that are hard to quantify. And if, if you get lost in the weeds without considering the bigger picture, I think that's where you can get completely shafted in this environment. There's so many places we can go uh, with Michael. I mean, I'm thinking concerned about maybe the shadow banking system, refinancing risk. I mean, is that something that's on your radar as, as well? I really think that the world is focusing on yesteryear's war because there's a crunch for the regional banks. And unfortunately, that's leading to uh, larger and larger uh, money center uh, banking power. But this is very, very different from GFC. There is no systemic banking I'm much more concerned about some hidden iceberg in the shadow banking sector, which I define very broadly as essentially any financial intermediary that's generally in the business of uh, lending long and borrowing short. And that would include hedge fund guys like like ourselves, right? Or ex-hedge fund guys like me. And, and, and also, you know, gosh, even, even um, you know, endowments and private equity funds, et cetera. It's just that the nature... Every financial crisis has its roots in ultimately an asset liability mismatch. And I think that the the reason why it's very easy to focus on banking as the epicenter of every crisis is that demand deposits have, can, can leave uh, on a whim. But, but the thing is, in the shadow banking sector, even asset liability mismatches can still happen, albeit on a, on a different timescale. I've experienced it in uh, 2006 when um, Amaranth blew up, if you guys remember that hedge fund. Um, it, had, it had crazy repercussions on my business, and this is how it had, because one of my largest anchor uh, investors was a, a giant, like a $5 billion fund of funds that was invested in Amaranth. And they wound up getting a rash of redemptions in 2007. And they had been promising 30-day liquidity to their investors, but they were invested in quarterly and annual liquidity managers like me. So they had a run on the bank at the fund of funds level, and they, it, which prompted them to shut their entire hedge fund, their entire fund of funds, and redeem from every investor. Uh, and so, and, and these, 
this was a very, very big LP for me. And it, you know, uh, made me put me in a very, very difficult spot going right into 2008. So, um, yeah, so I've, I've lived through that and, uh, I, I'm, I'm frankly surprised that we haven't seen another Bill Huang level, uh, implosion. And I'm still wondering, uh, where that might be on the flip side, though, I will say that part of the, some of the bets in my idiosyncratic book right now are long bets going the other way, where I think there are certain companies that have been brought down uh, in a big way based upon regional banking fears, but they themselves don't have the forcing functions that banking models do. So I've actually taken some con contrarian long positions in certain parts of uh, shadow banking uh, where for these idiosyncratic companies, I don't believe there is a forcing function that creates an insolvency risk. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Michael. Um, I don't think the, the, the regional banking crisis is over, by the way. I think it's, it's dormant because to your point, it's, there's a structural problem. There always is in banks, to be clear, but I think it's been dramatically exacerbated in this environment because of two kind of newer things. One, just technology, the ability and speed with which people can withdraw money and, and are willing to um, is, you know, not what we've seen, uh, you know, before. Um, you know, we talk about, oh, those, those guys at Silicon Valley Bank are idiots are mismatching their, you know, their short-term uh, assets with their long-term liabilities. But how do you match a, you know, a five-second asset to any liability, you know, I don't care if you're in in one month uh, T bills. Like uh, you, you got a problem, uh, especially given the amount of leverage that banks have just structurally in the system. That's a problem at, at its core. Add to that now derivatives, right, and and options and, and the amount of speculation now that's happening uh, in you know very illiquid parts of the market and the amount of leverage that's structurally embedded in that. And the fact that there's a feedback loop that if you can speculate with leverage against these entities, that people are going to pull their money up very quickly, and that whole thing is just a bitch's brew, right? Uh, it's a it's a uh, you know a structural system uh, where all it takes is a bit of speculation the wrong way when illiquidity is bad, and the whole thing just blows up. Um, and that's still there; that hasn't changed. Um, and so um, until we have a kind of broad writ large like all deposits are secure or, you know, uh, you know, it's going to take that. Um, we haven't had a liquidation. Uh, you know, the, the center has held, uh, when I say the center, it's really the index vol and all the compression of, uh, you know, vol at the center of, of the system is holding things firm. But, but if, and when that breaks, which it invariably will, um, I think that tail, uh, is very, very, uh, you know, is, is a major problem that we have not really addressed yet. And the weakness is very clear to any speculator and those now, um, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag. Um, so I think, I think we're going to see a much worse version of that. And again, I don't think it's structural to the way the, um, the money center kind of banks um, were during GFC. We've dealt with that part, but, uh, but it can definitely cause some major liquidation issues. Yeah. The money centers ultimately are, the bastions of, of strength in the system. And, but uh, yeah, I, I could see more regional banking spells.
But I, I do think that that's very, very different than the concoction that we saw in, in GFC, where it was truly a systemic issue where even money centers were, or were potentially at risk. In, in a world full of uncertainty that doesn't seem to become any more certain uh, at the moment, at least, um, I uh, and, and sort of playing on the theme of, of this thing about trust, maybe my last question for both of you really would be, you know, is it time for us to reimagine what are safe assets? And if so, what do you think? I mean, of course, I would always say trend following, but there we are. But what what are your thoughts in terms of 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 safe assets? Because I think actually a lot of investors struggle today in terms of you know where do I keep my assets safe without taking silly risks that I've been forced to do uh, during the CERT period. So, what are your thoughts, um, Jim? I'd love to start with you. Actually, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll give you, uh, you, you mentioned trend following, guess where I'm going to go. Yeah, I can't, uh, I can't imagine no, where I, you want to go. Structure, <laughs> I structurally believe in this environment that we are in an incredibly leveraged environment uh, due to all the malinvestment and everything that comes with ZERP, right? And, and the 40 years of liquidity being pushed into the system. This is not a new concept, right? This is how these things go. We've been on an extended cycle uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, liquidity being pushed in the system because of the Fed's involvement, and I believe that means we have you know historic leverage and risk in the system. That's not just equities; that's across the board in all kinds of different areas of the market: private equity, venture capital, real estate. And the reality is, things can hold together for a very long time. But what's happening is we're hollowing out that sand pile from underneath, right? And what you see with first, you know, the, the, the regional banking crisis is a symptom of, of what is increasing fragility due to less liquidity and less Fed control and less systemic control. So higher interest rates, less liquidity means higher risk premium. But that's always true. It's particularly a leptocurtic fat tail distribution across the market, in my view, structurally, because of the amount of leverage that's paired with that now kind of decreasing liquidity. And that is a very, very dangerous situation. A fat tail environment doesn't mean we're going to crash tomorrow. It doesn't mean that markets go down tomorrow or next week or next month or next year even. What it means is it's a much more fragile system. And when things do break, they tend to break big. Um, and I think we're just in a much more multidimensional system with much more tail exposure. So owning tails has been uh, expensive. And I I know that because I've I've given how many tear tear ups <laughs> of uh, options that I've had throughout the last year. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And so the answer there, you have to be smart about it, right? And and owning the tail doesn't mean you just go own puts. Um, there are ways to own uh, the tail uh, and be structured in a much uh, more efficient way. One, two. And I think this is important. You have to be aware of when and how to be aggressive in, in that place. You, you, it, is, it is expensive, to your point. So this concept of dealer positioning, which I talk so much about, is, uh, is, is very much um, critical um, because things tend to not break when the supply is there, right? It's when people start to, when the positioning weakens, 
amidst a bigger structural liquidity issue, that's when you uh, really have to be more aggressive. And so understanding of market microstructure, positioning um, needs to be paired with a bigger macro reality and, and the macro liquid flows. And I think if you use those two tools, right, there's both this relative value, understand the distribution, what part of the distribution is overvalued, relatively paired with kind of a, a better, broader understanding of, of when positioning is particularly weak in terms of timing and how to, to be aggressive at those moments. I think you can really structure, again, you have to have that focus. Doesn't mean you just blindly go do it kind of, uh, you know, without uh, market intelligence. But, uh, but I do think that should be the focus is trying to find those tails in ways that you can um, you know, in an asymmetric way when the opportunities present themselves in timing and relative value. Well, I mean, for, for me, I, I guess I don't, because I'm a, I'm a private investor now and I'm not actively managing other people's money anymore, I have a big degree of freedom that perhaps you gentlemen don't have, which is I can just park a lot of my liquidity in, in basically treasuries, right? And, and just wait. And so honestly, over the last year or so, my, probably my, as I get my distributions from my, you know, private equity, I've been essentially recycling them into treasuries, just kind of waiting for the fat pitch. For my trading accounts, um, to your point, Jim, I mean, I think I could just general, I'm not going to comment on the idiosyncratic names, but I'll say that generally my strategy has been that uh, I like to own tails. Um, I've wasted a lot of premium on the tails. But I view them as hedges, and I've paid for those hedges by selling optionality in certain idiosyncratic names where I have you know, high confidence that I'm being overpaid uh, for that risk. And so that's, it's, that's, that's generally actually worked out pretty well. It's, it's my way of having the tail protection without really paying for it. Right, because I'm I'm basically getting uh, uh, getting that premium back in other in other ways. You know, when I when I ran a convertible ARB cap structure ARB strategy, it was it was a very very similar type of mentality. I wanted to get paid to wait uh, for the for the optionality, and that's you know it's harder than it sounds, obviously, because generally you need to pay for insurance. But I do think you can find ways of paying for that insurance without just constantly bleeding theta. Well, I certainly know one place where that can happen. And as we talked about before we pressed record, Michael, you could have been one of my colleagues in the CTA industry when you were very young. So uh, people won't know what that means, but uh, but that is a fun fact. <laughs> Anyways, I think this is a great time to uh, to wrap up our conversation for today. No doubt we will be uh, waiting for another opportunity uh, to do this. This really has been an awesome conversation, uh, Michael, and we really appreciate uh, your time. Um, and by the way, make Thank sure you. you go. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. And make sure you go and follow Michael's work as well as his engaging Twitter feed. You can, of course, find all the links in the show notes today uh, or for today's episode. And as you can tell from our conversation, we are living in a truly global macro during world. And perhaps it is more important than ever before to stay well informed. From Jim and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.